Welcome to Finding My Yum, a sex-positive podcast celebrating all forms of sexual expression. Each week, we bring on a new guest to share their journey. We talk honestly and openly about what they're into and what sex, kinks, love, and more look like in the real world. I'm Jerry Courtney Austin. And I'm Will Lentz. And we are your hosts. And today, we are joined by reproductive psychiatrist Dr. Sarah Kaufman. Oh my God, to talk all things uh history of abortion reproductive rights uh body autonomy postpartum pregnancy uh you know reproductive rights in jails god we we cover the gamut and uh this is one of the most fascinating exciting interviews uh you know i think we've done uh, all of them are are like this but this really just got me jazzed um and and before we get into that i think both of us would like to celebrate (laughs) Joe Biden's win um, as the president-elect and Kamala Harris as the first woman, first black woman, and first South Asian woman to be elected vice president. Uh, Yeah. Congratulations, guys. Yeah. Uh, Congratulations, y'all. Very, it was a huge relief. Um, Yeah. And just, did you watch the speeches? They're they're kind of... I, yeah, did, I, I typically him. I wasn't really planning on it because I, I tend to not love hearing from politicians when they're in politics mode because sure. I'm just like this is messaging but uh, I listened to it and it was like just such a relief to hear adults oh talk <laughs> to hear like an adult talk and not label anybody or have a tantrum right. or yeah to use like kind um, non-divisive rhetoric was so refreshing <laughs> yes absolutely it was it was lovely and I, mom uh, is a big um, she was a big Hillary supporter, and okay. and so she was like, I, you know, wouldn't it be great if Kamala came out in a white pantsuit, and then she did, and she was so excited. And oh my like, god, yeah, she looks great. so fucking great. She did. Yeah. What's the climate in Kentucky? Um, you know, it's not as uh, contentious here as I think that um I might expect. Oh, I will, sh- I will share this. I don't usually engage with people on Facebook over like kind of Facebook political arguing type stuff, um, but. Someone that I used to work with in the school system, so an educator, uh, posted like, not my president, when Biden won. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, whatever. And somebody commented in there like, "I he better get a recount. Gore got one, and it took 37 days for them to do ba-ba-da-ba-da-ba-da. Yeah. And I just was in a mood that morning, and I was like, hey, so like recounts work if they're under a certain threshold. You know, it's not... It's not political. It's like that was a 600 vote thing. So obviously that was going to go to it. And you're seeing Georgia's going to recount because it's under 5.5. So that's just how this works. Um, Like very nonpartisan. And uh, a couple hours later, it was deleted. And I was like, you're an educator. I was educating people. What's going on? Well, I think it's crazy. I've been seeing the same kind of rhetoric. And, you know, I remember being I was very young for Bush Gore, but but I didn't even realize at that time it was yeah it was five six hundred votes which is totally different than what's happening now and it was one motherfucking state yeah you know what I mean so I, I, like when people are using these examples it's just it just blows my mind and yeah. uh you know I I was using very strong language for Mitch McConnell because uh he came out on Monday in support of the president and so have many Republicans in Congress and. I just, 
I just it makes me want to scream <laughs> into the void. Um, and and that kind of brings us to the episode today, but also to the fact that like while this is a victory and a tiny release, like there is so much work to do. There's so much personal work to do. Like we are still a society of systemic racism. There is still incredible misogyny. Like it doesn't just go away with Trump. And so we have to remember that and continue to be active. And I hope, you know, all of us that have been so activated politi- politically continue that because the fight is not over. Um, oh. And one person who is so actively involved in that is Dr. Sarah Kaufman as a reproductive psychiatrist. Like, you know, she is on the front lines dealing with with women and and their reproductive issues and like, God, just just how we treat women in general and the support that's really needed, not only for women, but for men um, is is tremendous. And uh, her work inspired me to like totally spiral and want to go to med school and become a reproductive psychiatrist which I didn't even know was a thing um because you know I I can see how much impact she's having on an individual and a massive um level yeah that's amazing I uh yeah I think it's definitely a reminder of you know I think we oftentimes think you know if this person wins an election or whatever then uh, we did it I did my job I I voted um but the real people that out there are affecting change in people's day-to-day lives um are people like Dr. Sarah Kaufman. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm super excited to share this one with you guys. Yeah, uh, please enjoy. Yay, welcome to Finding My Yum. I am so unbelievably excited today. We have Dr. Sarah Kaufman here, who is a reproductive psychiatrist. Um, we are going to talk all things about what that means, um, about sex, pelvic pain, reproductive issues, etc. Um, I know that you spent some time in jails working with trans women, so there's just a lot on the plate to talk about, and I'm so grateful to have you here. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. Um, so I'd love to begin just by talking about um, where, how you got your start and what brought you into the field of reproductive psychology or psychiatry. Excuse sure, me. of course. Um, so I've always been very interested in individual stories and sort of the stories of how people get where they are, which I guess is what you're asking me right now, but yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah, totally. so, so when I was younger, I was actually an actor and I, part of why I loved that was because it's about story, storytelling, learning someone else's story. Um, so in college, I had a double major in theater and then health promotion and disease prevention, which was more about like smoking cessation, safe sex, like so go around, you know, passing out condoms and talking to people about quitting smoking and things like that. Okay. I liked that, but I didn't think that's necessarily what I would do. So actually after college, I um, moved to New York City, was doing some acting, and then I don't even really know how this happened, wound up working as a wellness consultant at a hedge fund. And oh, wow. Thinking, yeah, <laughs> thinking more about public health and what does that mean and trying to get everyone to walk. And I don't even know. So anyway, so I was doing that and got and over the years, I did a number of things for about five years in the community, worked in an HIV lab studying the transmission of HIV through cervical mucus. So I actually would oh. consent women who were going for their regular old ob appointment and say, hey, do you mind if during your pap today you donate some of your cervical mucus? <laughs> wow. So okay. That was really interesting. So I met a Probably of- a question you never thought that you'd ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And women would be like, why do you want that? And so I'd explain, well, actually, it's really valuable for us to be able to use this and study and 
because um, the, the cervix and actually the mucus the cervix produces our, our um, it's our first barrier basically against like bacteria infections all kinds of stuff so it's actually very powerful and can reduce like the transmission of HIV actually depending on where a woman is in her cycle which is pretty interesting oh um, wow so yes, essentially yeah I know <laughs> in the midst of all this I decided to go to med school um, with the idea I was going to be an OBGYN. Uh, that's what I really loved. And I just loved reproductive health. I, I love talking to women about their stories, helping people make decisions, you know, family planning decisions and things like that. Um, but I also love stories. So when I got to medical school, I found, I actually kind of loved everything, but in addition yeah. to really enjoying OB, I really loved psychiatry because I got to have time with individuals in a way that really other, other types of physicians really just can't, unfortunately. Um, right. So between the two, I, I kind of went around on what do I want to do? I worked in a free clinic during both OB work and, um, well, more gyne work, but OBGYN work, and then um, also psychiatry, and ultimately decided, I found out there was this sort of niche area, which some people call reproductive psychiatry, some people call it women's mental health, they're sort of different names. This niche area had just started to grow, and a few programs around the country had fellowships in what's called reproductive psychiatry. And so oh. for a variety of reasons, I decided to pursue psychiatry residency, which is four general years of training, do a women's mental health fellowship, which I can explain that in a moment. And then I actually yeah. stayed an additional year to do a forensic psychiatry fellowship because I was working at a women's prison and I'm very interested actually in the incarceration of women and mothers and sort of the um, reproductive rights, parenting rights, and kind of how that plays in for women who are incarcerated. And also just around reproductive decision-making and some ethical stuff. So I stayed on an additional year for that. So sort of a long answer to your question. <laughs> I love that. No, that, that, God, that's such an amazing journey. I, you know, I, my, both of my parents are physicians. And so I okay. flirted with the idea of going to med school a lot. And, um, and I found the human body fascinating and also love the story aspect. And also my mom has had so many surgeries and I, I remember being in the, the waiting room so many times and it was just all these dudes and I was like, oh, there just needs to be more estrogen. Like I just need more women in this space to to be calming and kind and, and more inclusive, you know, like it, it was a very – it was a very chauvinistic environment, even in, you know, in, in the waiting room. But um, yeah, that, that, that's so awesome. And so in terms of the the fellowship that you did, what what was the what was the Women's Health Fellowship? So it's a little bit different depending on where people train. I was at Columbia, which is one of the first fellowships that started um the fellowship there started maybe 10 years ago. I might be wrong, but I think about that long ago. Um, so when I was there, it was split up among a number of things. So first there was just the sort of bread and butter women who were considering pregnancy, who were on psychiatric medications before and coming to talk about, it's called like preconception counseling, coming and talking about, oh, should I make changes in my medication? What do you think? What strategies can I use to support me during pregnancy and postpartum? Or meeting women who already were pregnant or postpartum. Um, Pregnancy, the same as the onset of menses and the same as menopause, all three of these times, um, women are particularly vulnerable to depression, anxiety, various types of mental health, um, and then just typical like PMS, right? I mean, hormones, hormones influence our mental health significantly. So um, it was a lot of perinatal mental health in the clinic. 
Then there was also a fair amount of work um, around women in perimenopause or women with PMDD, which is sort of uh, the clinical term for someone with um, PMS, but it's risen to the level where someone's actually having like pretty significant functional deficits, lots of times difficulty concentrating or irritability, trouble sleeping in those few days before menstruating. Um, so I saw a lot of women with that. And then a fair amount of work also for women, and not just women, but women and partners struggling with infertility, trying to decide if they wanted to continue to pursue fertility treatment, also working with um, families around uh, fetal loss and just making decisions about like general decision-making around reproductive decision-making. So separately doing some consults um, for women who maybe have questionable decision-making capacity. So if someone like, for instance, I'm actually just finishing up a paper on this so you can imagine, um, this, there's been some writing on this around women, for instance, with Down syndrome or other types of intellectual um, disabilities where it may be difficult for them to make decisions around birth control or other reproductive rights types decisions. In psychiatry, sometimes we'll see something similar where women might currently be manic or psychotic um, and she's pregnant and now there's a consideration of a termination, but can she, at this moment, does she have capacity, which basically capacity means, can you fully understand what's being asked of you and the risks and benefits of a procedure? Um, and I think the overarching, uh, in general for women, the idea is pregnancy is the, is the steady state. Like if we do something like that's us intervening, whereas I think there should be more of an understanding of pregnancy isn't like the normal state either, right? So either way, there's a there's a large risk and benefit to both, like continuing a pregnancy that a woman may not desire, even if at the current time, she doesn't have the capacity to say that. So I started doing some work around that and continued that work in my fellowship, sort of a framework of how do we help these women and usually the families navigate what a woman's choices might be at this time if she isn't able to make them for herself, because particularly with terminations, there's a narrow time window that you have to make these decisions in. Um, and it's really not appropriate to keep deferring these decisions or to leave a woman either way to say, oh, we have to terminate this. You know, if we're not sure that's what a woman's choice would be, which can happen. Um, or the opposite saying, oh, well, this individual, you know, we'll just leave her pregnant because otherwise we're doing something. Um, but leaving someone pregnant is also doing something. It just doesn't feel like that, right? So anyway, so some work like that. And then also um, Columbia in particular, they're involved in the family justice centers in New York, um, which are places where individuals can go if there's any sort of intimate partner violence, domestic violence going on, and they have like legal representation, social work, and then New York's one of the places to pioneer also placing psychiatrists within these centers. So I didn't personally work in one of the centers, but our weekly rounds involved the um, clinical team from there. So I got a lot of training around intimate partner violence, sex trafficking, that type of um, training, which is really valuable because especially if we're gonna talk about pelvic pain today, pelvic pain can come from a lot of places, but women in general um, are subjected to so much more sexual trauma um, than I think a lot of people recognize. Um, and that can you know, lead to all kinds of physical and psychological outcomes. So it was great to get that training, kind of just general like trauma-based therapy and. Yeah, a lot of stuff. Yeah. It was a great year. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, oh my gosh, I have so many things that I want to like delve into. I I think the first thing that I that kind of piqued my interest and I I'd like to expand a little bit more on is 
this idea of determining somebody's mental capacity and then discussion of termination and 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 that that you know pregnancy and termination are both disruptions of the the female anatomy of 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 you know uterus having people's bodies um and I guess the first question that I have is you know the field of psychiatry and and determining people's mental states is is within the last hundred years sort of how we've 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 come up with these terms right and so I'm wondering about your I don't know how to ask this question. I, it, it's it's interesting to me to to come up with a label for somebody or or have a diagnosis that then impacts them directly in something that we're talking about as pregnancy and having like to carry a, a child to term or having the option and the capability to to terminate a pregnancy. And so now so now not only we're dealing with this with this diagnosis and this label, but then it's directly affecting the physical the body in, in such a in such an important way and so I guess I'd just love for you to expand on that because to me that kind of blows my mind and I don't quite know how you balance those two aspects yeah and I think what you're getting at is really important which is in general so when we're thinking about capacity someone doesn't necessarily even have to have a diagnosis so any doctor can determine capacity so you can imagine someone coming in gets hit by a car no one really knows anything about the person and they come in and they're just delirious because they lost a lot of blood and they're not able to answer questions. So they're trying to ask them, you know, if we don't get you into the OR, what's going to happen? They don't answer. So theoretically, you try and contact next of kin. But if you can't, there's this assumption you're just going to operate and figure out later because someone's, you know, it's an emergency. That said, if someone is in an emergency situation similar to that, um, like let's say some, but they're not, they're able to engage. So someone could come in and say, um, yeah, I know I'm dying, but I don't want you to intervene because maybe of religious reasons or because um, of a lack of understanding of what the procedure is, or sometimes because someone, maybe they have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, who knows what, maybe they're high on methamphetamine, who knows, but they're psychotic. They're, they're saying, well, I know you're really an alien, and if you do this procedure right now, you're going to implant something in my body. So... If this was a medical procedure, so a non, well, not that termination is not medical. If it was a non-reproductive procedure, it's pretty well understood how you go about making those decisions, right? So you're going you're gonna to come to the decision, this person doesn't have capacity. So to demonstrate capacity, you have to show you know what the procedure is. You have to say, um, I understand the risks and benefits of having this procedure done. This also applies to medication, but we were talking about procedures. Sure. And then you have to say, despite those risks and benefits, this is my decision and why, and you have to stick to your decision. So if you're constantly changing your mind, that doesn't demonstrate capacity. So if someone can't show that, um, typically if it's a non-reproductive procedure, there's, depending on the state, there's different rules, but typically you go to a family member. If someone's been designated already, great. This is like if someone makes, you know, an advanced directive or things like that. If not, usually it'll go to spouse or parent, something like that. And then if someone gives the sign off, usually it's just documented and it seems like the medically appropriate thing to do, um, the procedure will continue unless the person's actively expressing some reason. And it can get complicated if someone's like, really, no, I don't want you to cut off my leg. And everyone in the family saying, yes, there's still, there has to, um, you know, ethics teams get involved. When you're talking okay. about reproduction though, depending on what state you are, sometimes 
no one is allowed to make a reproductive decision for that woman. So effectively, because the way the, the laws have been written, effectively for a woman who's not able to demonstrate capacity. So let's say she comes in, like for instance, in this paper I'm finishing right now, one of the case examples, the woman, um, she believes that she previously, she had an IUD in place. She knew she wanted to have, she does not desire pregnancy. All that was well-documented. So it's clear she didn't desire pregnancy, um, but does have a history of bipolar disorder. So after she became pregnant, she was of course, shocked and upset and you know you have an IUD and you get pregnant which does happen yeah. um, you know it's really scary and she wound up stopping her medication and became manic and was psychotic and so when she came in for the termination she was saying there's spawn of satan inside of me i need you to perform an exorcism and so naturally the OBGYN was like oh i don't know like i'm supposed to have her sign she thinks she's having an exorcism like this is like right, great right, like right. she's not really explaining what's happening in this case, at least the framework I have um, for a case like this as well, she clearly expressed her wishes before. She had an IUD in place. She is asking for something in line with what, it's not like she's coming in saying, I can't wait to be a mom. And you're like, no, we're gonna give you a termination because of what you said before, sure, right? Sure, sure. Like she's saying, so we can kind of understand what she wants. So there it's where a, sometimes a psychiatrist can come in and be like, I actually think this is, a, I think what's happening here is appropriate. But imagine if you had no idea what she wanted previously. Um, and someone comes in, uh, you know, most providers aren't going to be comfortable saying so, but if in the state you're in, no one else can make that decision, effectively women then remain pregnant because if no one else is allowed to step in and be the surrogate there, um, what's supposed to happen? So I guess the point is the default, the default in general, um, is that pregnancy is like a state that's happening anyway. The default is leave the pregnancy, right? Like in so many ways, that's sort of the default. Right. And I think one way to think about this is it's the idea of the, 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 not the sin, but the crime or whatever word you want to use it, the crime of commission versus omission. So it can feel like doing something to this woman, right? Doing something to her, a termination, giving her a medication, whatever it is, that in some way is much more, you know, inappropriate or violent or whatever than not doing something. But actually the not doing something, when you think about it, could actually be much more devastating. For someone but i think as physicians often there's the idea well it's better to just leave leave it and i think the same thing happens with just in general the way we talk about termination this idea of oh the risks of termination it's like well, what about the risks of pregnancy <laughs> women die from complications of pregnancy and childbirth all the time especially women of color in our country like it's not um it's not uncommon but you know depending on where you are there's all this talk about oh well the risks of this termination which is kind of ridiculous you're not comparing too. Yeah, thank you so much for expanding on that. It, it feels, it definitely feels like we get into some really interesting ethical territory. And I guess what comes up for me is, yeah, it's this interesting line of even if somebody, like in my brain, just because I feel like it's so important to have the right to choose. Like if somebody thinks they have the spawn of Satan in their belly, like mm -hmm. you get the spawn of Satan out of your belly. Like, you know, like, like they don't want that in there. And I support that. Right. But it is this really interesting territory that I feel like could be taken advantage of both ways. Right. Um, I'd love to delve more into, into termination and, um, uh, in terms of like Roe v. Wade, and I'm curious about your knowledge of 
privacy allowances that were were given through Roe v. Wade because that's really what what the Supreme Court decision did and and if you've had experience in places where termination was not easily accessible where um, like the ramifications that you've seen in your practice of what happens when women don't have these options when they don't have access to these kinds of choices um, and they're voice forced into one particular choice which is carrying a pregnancy to term yeah so i will say i have been lucky enough to practice medicine in new york and california where access is pretty good so most of my knowledge about this is either from within the criminal justice system oh, okay. or or just like general stuff i've written on so i can answer so it's not yeah. individual women i've treated but i will say um so I'll speak about maybe criminal justice system seconds. That's sort of a smaller population. But I will say in general, depending on what state you're in, um, the access to not even just termination, but family planning. Family planning is like the general term, right? For like being right. a birth control, having IUD, next one on, whatever, um, can be quite limited. And around termination in particular, depending on what state you're in, even if you get access, to go um, to a particular clinic, right? You might have to have a waiting period after you go. So say you you get you say you get childcare because most women pursuing terminations actually already have children. So let's say you say you get childcare, you take care of everything you need to take care of. You drive all the way out to some clinic that's two hours from your house because that's the closest place you can get to. They make you sit through this mandated language. Which speaking of Roe v. Wade, um, around the time of Roe v. Wade, I always forget the name of this case. It's Planned Parenthood the case, honestly, I don't remember, but it's from Pennsylvania. Um, okay. After Ruby Way, there were a number of other cases decided about, okay, we're going to allow, you know, privacy and termination, but what, what kind of restrictions can we put around this termination, right? So one of the things that over half of the states have are mandated language that women have to listen to before they're allowed to consent. So it's actually the same idea of capacity and consent. Before someone can consent, they have to hear this language. And a lot of this language is actually um, wrong, uh, like there's misinformation out there, which, which you think about it actually is unconstitutional because the Supreme Court case said, yes, as long as women are presented with accurate language, a state can mandate that they listen to this. But a lot of the language will say things like, you know, a four week um, old fetus can feel pain. I mean, no, that's not true. Or that um, uh, a termination increases your risk of suicide, which is not true. Um, so there's just misinformation. So a woman, even if she's able to make it to an appointment, then not only will she um, have to hear a lot of misinformation that could be very distressing and disturbing, but then be told, oh, now you have to wait till 48 hours, 24 hours, however long to drive all the way back out again. And additionally, depending on what state you're in, you're forced to look at not just be subjected to an ultrasound, which is unnecessary in the first trimester, um, medically unnecessary, um, to confirm before having a termination, but sometimes the doctor has to describe to you what they're seeing on the ultrasound. So this type of um, behavior feels very much like controlling women, um, very much this idea, the steady state is pregnancy. And for you to say you're not going to have the pregnancy, you have to jump through all these hoops. Um, neither New York or California have those types of laws. So again, I haven't seen women who had to listen to this. Basically, it's mandated informed consent. Um, that said, uh, at least in the criminal justice system, I saw this definitely um, some in New York, and I've read a lot about it and heard about it from other colleagues. Depending on what jail, jails actually in prisons can be quite different about this, what jail or prison you're in, a woman may not even get a pregnancy test when she's 
brought into a facility. And so, and of course, once you're in jail or prison, you don't have, I mean, you have medical care, but it's not like the same as you can just pick up the phone and go see a doctor. You can't just go pick up a pregnancy test. Um, so women often when they're incarcerated settings might not even find out they're pregnant until several months down the line, right? Especially in that stress, you can imagine if your menstruation's off, you might think, oh, I'm in prison, I'm in jail, you know, I'm a little bit distressed, or maybe you have an IUD or you're on birth control, so you don't, you're not used to getting your periods, so you don't know. And so then what can happen for women in incarcerated settings, if they don't even find out until they're three, four months pregnant, now they may not even have very many options available to them, right? Because depending on what state you're in, a lot of states, the you know, you only can pursue a termination up until viability, which, you know, depending on the state, could be around 20 weeks. Some states try and restrict further than that. Um, and so I think, and then even if you do find out you're pregnant, you know, things take time in the criminal justice system. So if you're in jail, you're not going to get an appointment that day. So I think that's a, I, I am a strong supporter of, you know, um, universal pregnancy testing for women coming into that setting and then really um plenty of women get pregnant while they're incarcerated as well um through a variety of ways and so i think just regular access to reproductive care is so important um and, and i think you could have, this is a corollary really to any population um with lower or lesser access to care, right? So it's not just incarcerated women. I mean, women who just don't have regular access to care or might not. That's what, that's what tends to drive a lot of the women who aren't able to pursue a termination is by the time they realize they're pregnant, they're in the second trimester and now their options are more limited. Yeah, I want to get back to that piece and I definitely want to talk about um, the, the criminal justice aspect and your um your specific experience within a jail um I did want to talk about uh because I think that's so helpful I didn't know a lot of what you're talking about with the mandated informed consent that it's so um can have false information which directly contradicts the constitution and 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 what what we are afforded in terms of rights um which just compounds this issue and honestly just makes my blood boil over and over again but um and so i'm curious do you have insight if roe v wade were to be overturned like it's being spoken about at length right now and looks like a potential possibility how does that impact uh like on a grander scale from from your from your knowledge um in terms of like access to care in general like i mean it impacts these other aspects not only just with termination but in terms of like the the reproductive access and family planning am i right yeah so i wish i had an answer for you although i will say one sort of also lesser known role that psychiatry has played in this for a long time is before roe v wade there's always been the ability, at least as far as I know, generally always been the ability for a woman to get a termination if it was medically necessary, right? So if someone um, has, you know, uncontrollable gestational hypertension, right? Or a woman is having, you know, a physical placenta previa and it's bleeding all the time, whatever. And so a, a role that psychiatrists played actually like back in, you know, the 30s and 40s and, and um 50s and and still sometimes happens but you know they would say this woman has depression or anxiety or whatever it is because of the pregnancy and there were sort of these um 
terms, and I, I can't remember exact terminology right now because these aren't real diagnoses, but these diagnoses that were created that basically were saying this woman has to have an abortion, like a psychiatrist was saying this woman has to have an abortion, even if they weren't like technically, um, they didn't actually meet criteria for like a major depressive disorder or a general anxiety disorder. So on the one hand, you could say, well, these doctors are doing a great thing. They, you know, the, the patient, these patients are able to come to them, get this diagnosis and now say that, um, it was medically necessary to have the termination. So there's already been some talk in psychiatric circles of, are we going to be put back in the situation as psychiatrists? Because oh, we're the one sort of practitioner. It's not like there's a, um, a blood pressure test. There's not a blood test to say someone's, you know, it's like you're saying this woman's blood pressure is 200 over 120. She requires a termination. There isn't a blood test saying she's developing, you know, whatever liver failure or something from the pregnancy, you know, technically a doctor could say this woman is, is depressed and, has suicidality because she's pregnant and no, no one necessarily can say that's correct or not. That said, it gets back into this ethical stuff. Like, can we be diagnosing individuals with things that aren't real? It's, that's where it gets complicated as in, you want to be right. an advocate and say, we want to help someone pursue their rights. But then it's this murky area of like, this was happening actually um, for a time. I forget in what state this was for women to get later, like for instance, to get, um, to get terminations after the cutoff in the state. I feel like the cutoff was around 20 weeks and there was a doctor who was kind of regularly doing this for women kind of in like that 20 to 30 week time period and saying they had various, you know, disorders, but it was a psychiatrist and it was sort of this odd situation. They never actually like followed up with any of the women or like died. And one of the women actually wound up committing suicide. It was like, well, if someone actually had this disorder and you diagnosed it, but it you, did, you were basically diagnosing it just to help facilitate the termination. Right. And really, if you're going to be treating someone, really, we should be following through on these diagnoses and what do they mean? So I, I think it'll be interesting because it is this murky field, an ethically complicated field, but um, the, it's possible that will be a way women are able to pursue termination is, is if they have a medical diagnosis, which could be a psychiatric diagnosis. Um, and to Two questions with that because I know that some of the legislation in order to uh, discourage physicians from from performing termination, from performing abortion was to amp up their malpractice and their um, um, responsibility. And basically one of the laws that I heard was that the physician was responsible if the woman ever in her lifetime decided that she didn't want to, like she regretted having a termination, that they could then sue the physician. And so I'm wondering, do you think, and I know that this is hypothetical, but but by you saying that, you know, it crosses potentially this ethical line, that then psychiatrists would be in this gray area of maybe having malpractice and having, uh, opening that door to potentially um, that kind of legislation. Yeah. And what I would say in general is to give someone a diagnosis that they don't meet criteria for is not, is ethically wrong, right? It sure. is. But that's why these things get challenging because you could see someone doing it in the service of trying to help a woman um, make, a, you know, help her make the decision she wants to about her body and her life. Um, so absolutely, that would open someone up to all kinds of malpractice issues, especially if they were giving diagnoses that didn't need criteria for and you'd have someone else come in. 
Um, I mean, that's sort of separate work I do as a forensic psychiatrist. Part of what forensic psychiatrists do is we are involved in malpractice cases, not around this question, but, and we're like, this is what happened. X, Y, Z thing happened. Did that doctor practice under the standard of care? Um, And if so, basically, if you're a doctor and what you did, other reasonable doctors would have done, even if there's a terrible outcome, generally, you're not, you're not going to lose a malpractice case. Malpractice is really about if you're doing something that wasn't really what other people did, you ignored your duty, you kind of, which if you're giving diagnoses that aren't real or not backing up your diagnosis, you certainly would be wide open to, to malpractice. Um, and so I think this, this, these type of, I think that is reasonable. I think what you're talking about, some of this legislation about malpractice gets really complicated. So you're saying to a, an OBGYN or any provider providing terminations, if that woman ever is going to regret her choice, you need to, you may be open to malpractice. I mean, that's, we don't have anything like that for anything else. I mean, again, how we're saying how we treat reproductive decisions so differently from any other kind of procedure. I mean, you can't imagine saying that to a doctor. If, if someone just, you know, nope. says, I, you know, I wish you never took my appendix out. Like, you know, I wish you, I mean, no. Um, so I think, I think it's similar to the mandated, consent language, doctors play, I don't think odd's the right word, but a a unique role in all this and that doctors are being told, like with this mandated consent stuff, it's one of the only places where doctors told, like their language is being controlled. You have to give that consent, right? So you're telling a doctor, you have to do it this way. The same way that you're talking about this legislation is trying to say to a doctor, like, we really don't want you doing this thing. Right. We're going to scare you from doing it. Um, so I don't, yeah, I mean, I wish I know what's going to happen in the next few years. I, yeah, it's super scary. Um, I'm, I'm curious about your experience treating and, and working with women uh, of all types who've had termination, um, who have had pregnancy that they wanted or didn't want, you know, go to term and this, this trauma aspect and this, this depression aspect of, of just mental health surrounding these decisions. Um, and, and what that looks like, cause I, I don't, I don't hear a lot about that side. You know, the the, the film lineage that that Michelle and I are working on is about the ancestral trauma of having just you know female anatomy, uh, you know, uterus having people's anatomy controlled for so long, um, having limited access, and that that compounds in in everybody's body from generations past. And so I'm just. I'd love to hear, yeah, any, anything that you can relate about, about those experiences and, and what you've gleaned from, from the work in that area. Yeah, absolutely. So I think I have a couple thoughts around, um, so first of all, in terms of mental health outcomes around pregnancy and termination, I, ta- I talked to Michelle a little bit about this, so stop me if you've already heard this, but there was this elegantly done study called the Turnaway Study, um, where they took, so for a long time, there's this idea, if a woman gets a termination, she's not going to be, she'll be a hardened mother in the future. She's going to be depressed. She's going to regret what she did. She's going to feel suicidal, all these things, you know? And um, there were psychiatrists and psychologists who subscribed to this idea too. It's this general idea women are made to be mothers and motherhood brings bliss and which talk about that in a minute. That is not the case for many women. Um, yeah. But there was this idea. And so this study was, and so what happened was, is these early studies were poorly designed and that they take women who had a termination and compare them to women who had 
a pregnancy and, and had children, but you're not comparing equal groups there, right? You're going to have very different baseline um, characteristics about women who were desiring a pregnancy and wanting children compared to a woman who had, who was pursuing a termination. They might have different socioeconomic characteristics, different cultural characteristics, they're in different places in their life. So the study that's been done, um, I think it was done from about 15 years ago to like five years ago, it ran on for a long time. Women were compared who had gone to all over the country. Um, they would go to a clinic to pursue a termination. And if they were within two weeks of the cutoff for termination, they received the termination. And the women who were within three weeks after um, who were turned away, both those groups were captured. So now you were comparing two groups of women that were much more similar. These were all women who went. They all went around the time when termination was allowed in, in their state and they were compared for outcomes. So the women who went on to have birth because they were turned away and the women who received terminations. And in that study, there is no difference between suicidality afterwards, um, anxiety, depression, various outcomes. In fact, the women who had children, it wasn't significant, but they showed some increased um, mental health concerns compared to the women who had a termination. That makes so, sense to me. <laughs> yeah, so it's a, it was a well done study because it finally disproved this idea that termination leads to suicidality and whatnot. That said, um, in general, like I mentioned before, mental health outcomes in the postpartum period are can be pretty abysmal depending on what kind of access to care women have. So 80% of women experience what we call the baby blues, which is what we all see in TV and we've seen in our friends and family, right? So most women, after they have a baby, for the first seven to 10 days, they're gonna be tearful and they're exhausted and they don't feel great and it's sort of just a mess and whatever. Women, though, typically kind of come back from that, but 20 and even now some studies are looking at maybe even 30% of women do develop postpartum depression, which has really significant outcomes for that woman, for the baby, for the family, for her going back to work, for her engaging in the world in the way she wants to. And in general, I think we really underdiagnose and undertreat postpartum conditions because there's, there is this stigma of, oh, you're a mom. It should be wonderful. You should be happy. That's what you we all want to be. And the reality is being a mom is hard and messy and complicated and women love their babies and hate their babies and are so happy they had a baby and regret they had a baby and all of that is normal. It is normal to feel all of that. But we're sort of told like, why would you ever want a termination? Why would you ever not, why would you ever want to not have children even separate from termination, making that decision to not want to be a parent. Um, and then if we do become parents, there's a lot of sort of shame around that not being your sole identity or your primary identity. And so to your point about ancestral trauma and intergenerational trauma, so many of these ideas about what it means to be a woman, what it means to be a mother, what, what we want our life to look like are cultural and passed down in our families. Right. So it's sort of what if we model ourselves after what kind of saw our parents do, or our grandparents do, and they modeled after their, their parents and it goes back. So not only are our genes coming through, right? So our actual genes are coming from our family, then the then the epigenetics are coming through, which is the way in which trauma, so when trauma happens to our grandparents, their genes can literally change. The the fundamental genes still there, but the way it gets expressed, right? Um, the way it's expressed when it passes the next generation can change. So the, the base genes pass on, these epigenetic changes, which essentially is like the genetics of stress. So like the stress is passed down. And then what our families tell us, like 
actually tell us like, oh, I can't wait till I'm going to be a grandparent and you're going to be such a great mom. And why are you like working so many hours? Don't you want to be a mom? And you know, why haven't you gotten married yet or whatever it is, right? There's the actual tells. And then also the, the, the non-verbal ways in which families pass on all kinds of messages about, you know, what, what our values should be. Um, so I think the majority of women practically practically every woman I've ever worked with wrestling with any of these decisions about termination or um, deciding to be a mother or deciding to stop IVF or deciding, you know, or just working through that being a mom isn't what they thought it would be. So much of it is looking back at expectations, like what mm. they thought it was going to be because of what their family did or didn't do and what they saw growing up in their immediate family and their cousins, maybe in their community and their religious community and their cultural community. Um, cause we do this all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering as you're talking about this, I would like to get into a little bit of specifics of postpartum. Um, just because I think I'm a little unclear about its relation to the actual hormones that are being produced through pregnancy, post-pregnancy. Um, but before we do that, I, I'm curious if, you know, how do we address these things? Like in, in your opinion and in, in the ways that you work with women and, and in what you can see culturally, like how do we begin to dismantle this, for lack of a better term, bullshit that's just like compounding and, and like on our backs all the time of, you know, now we have to be full, you know, like the whole package, right? We have to be moms and we have to be working and bringing in a full income and cleaning the house and you, we got to do everything. Um, and so how do we begin to to alleviate that pressure, to dismantle those expectations and, and, and with hopefully extended care, start to heal some of some of this trauma and some of some of these massive um stressors that are affecting all of our genetics yeah so i think i think the number one thing is what you're doing and what you guys are doing through your film and what we all try and do is is just talking about these issues because if we don't tell stories if we don't talk about how challenging things are we don't talk about um the stories in our families the stories we tell each other these things stay in the closet they stay they stay internal we often women don't even realize this pressure has been put on them necessarily because it's just the way in which we don't say a lot right so it's it's not just what we say but it's how much we don't say <laughs> like or like especially now in the world of social media you see women putting up all kinds of pictures of the perfect life for them and the baby and this and that and there's not pictures up of you know, the baby screaming and throw up everywhere and poop everywhere and we're all exhausted and we haven't slept and I've been crying all night and, and whatever else is going on. So I think the first step is just talking about um, how challenging these decisions are. And of course, it's going to take, it's one thing to expect someone to come out and talk all about their abortion story and why they did it. I mean, that, I mean, that's wonderful and people can do that. And the more people are open about talking about all the reproductive decision makings and their sexual decisions are, is wonderful. I think as simpler place to start um, or for anyone can start is at least sharing their experience of deciding whether or not they want to be a parent or at this point in their life um, or what their experience of being a mother has been or a parent has been. Um, although that for some people is just as challenging too. I mean, I can't tell you how many, yeah. just people in my personal life, not just professional life that will look at me and go, no, 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 it's all great. And you're like, well, you're here seeing me. <laughs> 
is it all great? Because it's so hard to admit that. So I think just talking about it and like education about the actual changes, as we can talk about the changes in becoming a mother um, that actually happen hormonally, the brain actually changes. We have changes in a lot of ways um, and more education around that um, so that not only are we more familiar and it's more normalized, these decisions are more normalized, but we kind of to know when we see someone maybe struggling like it gives you more permission to feel like oh i can kind of reach out and what i hope isn't you know in these past few months and years as we've looked at how how divisive things have become politically and all these talks about more open inclusive culture and communication i hope that as we're trying to come back together and heal as a society and try and look in general in more culturally inclusive ways and open ways piece of that will also be looking at people's decisions about whether or not they want a family and what that's like and not this general feeling that's part of what we're supposed to do, right? You know, we go to college, whatever, pursue whatever education, and then we go out and work and then we start this family and how that in and of itself is also um, very biased, that that's like what's supposed to happen. And so starting to realize we can, you know, start to respect people, not just for their, um, ethical background, cultural background, but their decisions about how they want to live their life. Just get to Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, God, I love all that. Um, Yes. Yes. And, and, and I, I believe that too. Like, you know, the, the ethos of this podcast is really just to be talking about what people are into and, and being honest and open about what people enjoy. For whatever reason, it doesn't matter, right? It's just like, this is something that I'm interested in and, and that's okay. Or this is my orientation and this is my expression of of my sexuality, of my, you know, whatever. Or lack thereof. Um, and that all of it is is okay. Um, and so, yeah, can we get into then the the physical hormonal uh, changes of, of pregnancy and, and what it actually does to the body even after the child is born. Yeah, absolutely. So at first in terms of postpartum depression, I think of that as there's like four different things sort of going on. So one is there's a huge hormonal shift. So you can imagine similar to how, um, before, or after you have a period, you have a little bit of shift in estrogen and progesterone. What happens after birth is like 200 times that like your hormone levels are way up here and they just go to zero. It's like you go from 200 times to being postmenopausal, right? Whoa. Shift in and of itself, we can lead to really significant issues with mood, with sleep, with irritability, with feeling like concentration, focus. Then there's the major uh, sleep deprivation that happens. Essentially, no matter what you do, no matter how much you want to optimize the postpartum period, um, unless you are not breastfeeding at all and you truly have this amazing support team and somehow you aren't with your baby at night, which I mean is not really what's happening, you're not gonna sleep. For like several months, you're really not gonna sleep much. And we know sleep deprivation has significant effects on cognition, on mood, um, not only just in the short term, but in the long term. So there's significant sleep deprivation. Um, and then there's this huge shift from being, especially for the first child, but really any child, from being whoever you are, right? Whatever things you love to do, maybe you're a wife, you're a girlfriend, you're, you're a partner, you're a uh, your businesswoman, you're an athletic person, whatever you are, whatever you define yourself as, now you're also a mother. And so one thing I think a lot about is it's not just the birth of the baby, but it's the birth of the mother. It's the birth of this woman and she's a brand new mother. And like, what does that mean? And what does motherhood mean? And when you talk about the intergenerational stuff, often this can be a beautiful time actually to heal. Um, 
maybe trauma from our own our own childhood or or even back like pre previous generations because it is a new beginning right it's a new it's a new you're a new mother in some ways you're a new person um you now have a new child and so it can be a actually a beautiful time to heal some of what happened the generation before um but it's also hard and scary and figuring out how you're going to navigate that how how what what does it mean to be a mother what's that like and then on top of that, your role within your spheres, your work sphere, your home sphere, your social life has now changed. So all of this is happening. Um, at the same time, your physical body has changed. So we've now, we've looked through like fMRI studies, which is where they can, in an MRI, they can look at um, people doing different cognitive tasks, like running through a maze while they're in the MRI machines, it's called functional MRI. And so they've done a number of studies of fMRI studies, other studies showing the brain actually changes after pregnancy and postpartum. Um, the male brain looks like it may change too, but particularly the female brain, in that the areas for empathy grow, actually grow. So like um, that, we think it's just from the surge of all the hormones in a way to kind of help the woman empathize and connect with this, this new being, because the reality is you now have something there always screaming, <laughs> demanding. <Right. laughs> and if you didn't have probably a boost in empathy, it would be hard to take care of <laughs> that creature, right? That's why we put oxytocin <laughs> pumping through. Oxytocin, the same thing we release after orgasm, the same thing we release when we cuddle, is pumping through your body like in unbelievable levels because it probably has to be so that the woman will take care of this creature, right? Totally. That makes sense because when I think about it and when I see screaming children, I'm like, absolutely not. Yeah, I don't yeah. want anything to do with that. Yeah. You know? It's like so, you yeah, oxytocin levels in your brain, like way times that what you get post-orgasm. It's the same hormone. It's a, it's a love hormone, right? Right. So so that's what's going through the new mom's brain, just kind of getting her through, getting her through all of that. Yeah. Um, and so that's happening. And then parts of the brain, it, I mean, that's why mommy brain is a real thing. Like, women then sometimes have more challenges with like memory and concentration because it's not so clear if it's because those parts of the brain shrunk due to hormones, but also just the sleep deprivation in general. So a lot of times women become better at multitasking. They become better usually at like this empathy and connection stuff, but they might have challenges like that they didn't used to have, like some word finding challenges or concentration challenges. Um, and then women's bodies change. Like, Many, many women develop pelvic floor dysfunction, um, whether it's then having pelvic pain later, but more commonly having prolapse, which can lead to all kinds of upsetting out. You know, women after childbirth often, they pee when they exercise, right? And if they don't get appropriate pelvic floor physical therapy or work on that, that can be really devastating too. Like you're used to being able to use your body in a certain way and now you can't run maybe, or now you're urinating yourself. You might be defecating on yourself if you, depending on what happened. Um, you might have some difficulty getting back into having a sexual relationship and just in general. So our bodies, our minds, and then our entire role change. So for all these reasons, you can see why postpartum depression is common. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. And it's interesting because I just was listening to NPR and they were, they were literally yesterday talking about how they're extending the um, suggestion for monitoring up to 
three years, I believe. I don't I don't know if you're aware of this, but they were saying that like monitoring for postpartum was a relatively brief amount of time. And now mm-hmm. there's a suggestion to continue it for far beyond what that initial suggestion was, mostly because I think of what you're talking about, about the, the lasting effects that can turn into something deeper if they're not addressed. Yeah, I know initially they used to just screen women for postpartum, like at the six week visit, um, and then sort of drop off or, or three months. There's a lot of push. I haven't heard to three years. That'd be great if they're trying to extend out. I know there's a lot of push to extend to a full year um, because postpartum period, that's another thing. People think, oh, you know, a woman's over. It's been a few months. You think it took nine months to get there. Like it's going to take at least that long to normalize. And women also can have, um, if a woman's breastfeeding, when she stops breastfeeding, and that's a whole other thing. Our culture, talk about expectations. There's so many expectations around women to breastfeed now. Breastfeeding is wonderful, don't get me wrong. There's wonderful things about it, but it's also really hard and messy and challenging. It doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, and there's a lot of shame around that. Like women feel like, oh, it's the natural way, it's the normal way, and it, it, it's not always- Right, I, didn't, I can't do it right. I'm not like a, a yeah, good enough, full exactly, enough woman. Exactly, But um, so after breastfeeding, when breastfeeding ends, there can be a dip um, as well in mood because breastfeeding kind of keeps that oxytocin level staying up, prolactin is staying up. So that uh, a lot of women farther out can develop postpartum depression. So I think that's where a lot of women get missed. They're maybe okay in those first few months and they don't develop an episode till three, six months down the, or six, nine months down the line. And it used to be that wouldn't even be covered. Um, one thing they might've been talking about NPRs are trying to extend Medicare coverage out for the full year for postpartum oh, okay. mental health because originally it only is covered, I think for three or six months because women should be able to get access to that care. I mean, it's so important, um, both for the mom and we know it's, it's very hard for women to attach and effectively take care of their children and themselves if they're feeling depressed. It affects the whole family. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. And that just gets into like our healthcare system and, and, and the fact that insurance is like running and determining what kind of care, how we can have care, when we can have care, um, which is a whole other discussion. But, um, yeah, so I think we're going to run out of time for the criminal justice aspect, but I did want to touch on the pelvic pain that you were talking about and, and a bunch of the, of the variety of root causes that can, can lead to that. Yeah. So first of all, I don't know if you've had a pelvic floor physical therapist on your podcast. I have nothing but amazing things to say about pelvic floor physical therapists. They are incredible people. They do particularly pelvic floor physical therapy. So oftentimes therapy involves like their fingers in the vagina or even in the anus and checking like for kegels and functioning how how the pelvis is working. Um, But I think almost all pregnant women, pretty much all women really should see a pelvic floor physical therapist at some time if they're having any kind of issue around orgasm, pelvic pain. Um, and then during pregnancy and postpartum, it'd be great if this was just something provi- provided by insurance like regularly, because all women can use some pelvic floor physical therapy work postpartum really to avoid, it sort of becomes this thing of, oh, it's normal to like maybe have some pain postpartum or to pee on yourself the rest of your life. And that's ridiculous. Like that shouldn't be normal. That can be dealt with. In other countries, it's part of what happens when see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Um, So pelvic pain comes from a lot of different things. So I think the first, when I see someone pelvic pain, usually I'm thinking about holistically a lot of things. So physically pelvic pain can be coming from something actually inside the vagina itself. So there could be um, the actual pelvic floor could be too tight. Um, so it's just 
very painful in that area. Other muscles around there could be too tight. There could be trauma in the vaginal area. Um, it, but it also could be pain from like bladder. So if someone has um, like an overactive bladder, issues around there, issues with their GI tract, all different kinds of things can lead to what then feels like pelvic pain because the nerves kind of around that area are complicated. Um, and then pelvic pain can also be related for a lot of women to like there's a obviously a mind-body connection. So if there's been a history of sexual trauma, if there's been a history maybe of molestation as a child or as an adult, even if there hasn't been a history of trauma, if, if someone has been told their whole life, like that's a, something we don't talk about, that's like a inappropriate thing, we don't wanna talk about sex, we don't wanna think about sex. Um, sometimes people physically like, they, they can just be kind of clenching their vagina. The idea is I don't want anything in there, I don't wanna think about anything there. Um, so I think with pelvic pain, um, it can be really challenging. So a lot of women who experience pelvic pain, they don't want to talk about it. They're ashamed about it. They might just think it's normal. They might think it's normal for sex to be painful. Um, it's normal, uh, that they don't want anything to do with sex, something like that. And they don't, they don't know that it's not because they haven't talked to anyone about it. So I think what's really important for women in general to know is if anything feels like it doesn't feel right, like if really sure sometimes depending on what type of sex you're having whatever you might have some vaginal soreness afterwards okay but if you're yeah. but if you're feeling like like too much tension vaginally or pain like with penetration again it also could be an issue with lubrication i mean there's a lot of things i think the most important point is bring it to the attention of an OBGYN or a pelvic floor physical therapist or a psychiatrist or someone you're working with or primary care doctor and saying i'm having this thing what can i do about it because it's very treatable um, for a lot of women, it's just learning how to relax, relax their pelvic floor. Um, and so it's a complicated, like multifactorial, um, area that I think used to be treated for a long time. Women would just be given dilators, you know, these various growing stages of like a dildo and just keep doing this and it will go away and it wouldn't address at all like the mental aspects or potentially other body organ systems involved. Um, so I think we're, we're growing now to a more holistic approach to why, why an individual might feel that, but pelvic floor physical therapists are amazing. Like I recommend them highly. <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. Now I want to talk to, to somebody for sure that I, I didn't even know that that was a thing. Um, you're great at it. Like they know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, you know, I think the, the emphasis on the mind body connection you know, I think stereotypically where we talk about how women in order to receive pleasure, experience pleasure, that it is more of a mind body thing. Although I don't necessarily know. I think men experience that as well. And penis having people have experienced that as well. But Absolutely. but it's it's so important in terms of, of mental health, too. And just like any kind of enjoyment and, and connection to like our reproductive selves and and bringing life into the world. Right. Like this this gift that we've been given that comes with so many different aspects um this has been thoroughly fascinating I'm so appreciative of your time there's so much more we could talk about so maybe we'll have to do a part two at some point but um thank you thank you thank you uh how can people find you if they if they would like to I don't know if you're open for new clients um or or if you operate out of a, a certain facility or something sure so I, I'm at the prison but probably, probably yeah. okay. um I actually am starting next week to see um I'm going to be the physician director at Hogue hospital system of their internal okay. mental health program 
Um, but that's just for people like in the Orange County area. But then I do have a private practice, um, which is almost all pretty much all reproductive psychiatry. Um, I don't really have a social media presence because I think of all the stuff that comes around that for me personal, for yeah, me personal. Totally. But, but my website is sarahkoffmanmd.com. That's so just my name, sarahkoffmanmd.com. If anyone is interested in reaching out, I do a lot of work with pelvic pain, preconception counseling, and just talking with women about, you know, reproductive decision-making and things like that. Amazing. Well, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes too. So, so people can contact you if they, if they would like to, this is so awesome. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. Yay. Oh my goodness! Woohoo! Woohoo! Oh my god! Uh, if you don't feel inspired and revved up, I don't know what's gonna get you there because I am just so inspired by Dr. Goffman. And honestly, I could have talked to her for hours. Um, so I'm hoping that we'll have her back because we didn't get to talk about her work in jails um, as much as I would have wanted. There was so much to cover, but I'm so grateful for her uh, to her for coming on. Thank you so much, and I hope you all got something out of it. And because of her suggestion, we do have pelvic floor therapy, uh, physical therapists coming on, and um, so it's exciting. We get to expand on that and 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 learn even more about what that means and and how the pelvic floor uh, impacts everyone. You know, yeah. vagina having people and penis having people and and children. You know. Yeah, I didn't realize that. I thought it was primarily vagina-having people that uh, had issues with the pelvic floor. So I'm excited to learn about that stuff, too. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, Well, as always, please follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Finding My Yum Podcast. Um, And uh, please, like, uh, you know, we do behind the scenes and we show clips. So join our community. We'd love to hear from you. Slide into those DMs. You can email us at findingmyyum at gmail.com. Uh, and make sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And take one of those, like, click the little three-dot button where it says, like, share and uh, and, and copy the link yeah. and uh, send it to... 171. 171 friends. That's a yeah. lot of friends. <laughs> I guess we gave you, like, a week off uh, to deal yeah, with the you process had some of the time. and stuff, yeah. so... Yeah. So, so you got to make up for two weeks here. Um, and I bet everybody wants work. to hear from you. <laughs> Do the work. Um, we love you. Uh, we're so excited. We have so much exciting content coming up. So stay tuned. Stay yummy. We'll see you next week.